it's not affected by what life throws at you and if you have that sense of mentality then no one can beat you that's it you have already made it because once you have conquered and started channeling that state of mentality that's it that's it then everything else is just insignificant this is richie nainani and welcome to chapters of my life podcast so have you ever asked yourself what could be your life book look like looking back in life to be honest often we forget the adventures the life turning points setbacks challenges or happy moments but honestly what really counts is to capture these moments these chapters and the learnings from them which lead to the person we are today in other words connecting the dots and this is all about this podcast chapters of my life it's all about connecting the dots connecting the chapters so it's an inspiring collection of life transitions packed into a podcast audiobook format capturing the willpower and belief of people during important life-changing decisions You can find this podcast on iTunes. Just search for Chapters of My Life. And we really dig deep. We interview innovators, athletes, entrepreneurs, idealists to give an insight into their past life from young age till today. Maybe future untold plans. So no doubt that this conversation can last up to two hours. But this is the beauty of a podcast, right? You can split it throughout the week. So my aim is to release one podcast per week. And I hope it will work out. My primary goal is to cover topics around sport, entrepreneurship, mindfulness, travel, nutrition, spirituality, yoga, meditation, and much more. Everything which leads to the person they are today. But please also leave some comments. What else do you want to hear? Are there specific topics you want to hear more from people? Let me know. Just leave some comments or PM me on social media. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at bydanielludwig. Also check out the show notes for direct links. Design thinking, social introvert, designpreneur, woman-centered design. All this in one podcast. I had Richie, co-founder of Orikami Lab in Dubai, on my podcast. To be precise, I visited her studio. A studio like no other one. Half white, half black. Something for the eyes. Her design is split in contrast. Because for her is all about perception. Richie co-founded Orikami Lab in 2015 together with her husband Hayden. I met her end of 2016 and got to know Orikami Lab as a design innovation hub that uses design thinking to simplify problems and discover solutions with the people at its center. Richie is truly a designer and entrepreneur mix. As her past work clients say, She not just focused on the design or the look for her, of her work, she also emphasizes on how it feels. Richie chooses five chapters in the Chapters of My Life book called The Big Picture. Chapter one is in fact a question. When did I grow up too fast? Where she gives an insight in her young age still quite mature and still serious childhood. Chapter two is about taking initiative and adopting change. She calls this chapter fluid adaptation. Chapter three called awakening. And yes, it's truly an awakening during her study life to understand that the education system is failing, but in particular, 
short trip to Brazil, where she first got in touch with human-centered design and seeing design as a way to impact people, a trip which was truly an awakening for her. With freelancing, her first clients, and gaining further work experience as a young designer, this is all about Chapter 4, which called Tip of the Iceberg, where she also slowly realized she is more and more interested into organizational, the logic and managing part of a company. Next chapter is self-explained. It called What the F Up. <laughs> and yes, it's all about the realization of what lead her co-found Ori Camilla. Enough said, it's time to dig deeper in this design thinking, human-centered design, entrepreneurship kind of podcast. And I'm looking forward to dig deeper into this bigger picture of how to find your own language as a designer. Here we go. Enjoy. So here we are. Yep. <laughs> Hi, After Richie. one and a half years. One and a half years. Hi, Richie. How are you? Good. How are you, Daniel? I have to say, I'm not just seeing you right now. I see a beautiful sunset behind oh, you. That's amazing. Is it like crowning my face? It is kind of, but there is a poster like in between. And I feel like, you know, I should tear down that poster because <laughs> I don't see entirely sunset but whenever I look at you now during the podcast I will see the sun oh so that's nice that's nice that's so a good memory to have yeah and then I think throughout the podcast now I will see the sunset oh yeah I think that's one of the best things about this office is the view it's amazing it's not just the view I have to say and that's for everyone who can see the picture um, which I posted online this that was the first time when I came here end of 2016 that's why I immediately found out or I saw it's divided into black and white yeah one one side is black one side is white yeah what was the reason for I think there were many right so uh, I think it came down to me and my co-founder Hithain so we are partners in life and also in work uh, very very different individuals so contrasting that we used to say that it is practically black and white um, and plus, I think it came down to spaces. Uh, what we wanted to set out to do at the beginning with Orikami Lab was um, narrating conversations around spaces, setting spaces up. And spaces tend to be set up between positive and negative elements, which as a graphic designer, visually, you depict that with black and white. So even with our website, even with our branding, even with everything else connecting uh, me and Hitain to Orikami Lab was black and white by the end of it. So we made sure, we were like, you know what, we also want to do that to the office. Very simple, you know, it's easily adaptable. And now there's a mix of beige and browns and goldens. But the first six months, it was pure black and white, even the furniture. And it was really nice because I think people also ended up uh, creating their own um, meanings and understandings out of the space on what they gathered from the it. The space should reflect your identity or yeah. you know what you believe in exactly well, and also to the people who are visiting the space we yeah. always felt it because we found that individual to be so important in every work of our life that we wanted to make sure that the person visiting us in the office be it a team member or a potential client a partner a friend family anyone they draw their own experiences out of it as well and 
black and white are both canvases that you can fill out your thoughts and opinions on. So, you know, it gets so abstract. It's so layered when the more you think about it. Yeah, I yeah. remember like end of 2006, you know, the first time I entered the office and I, I asked myself, like, I, I actually, I, I, I have never seen such an office before, you know? <laughs> Usually you see office, you know, innovative office, a lot of light, a lot of open spaces, etc., but not where the color itself is defined, what you're actually working on as well. And that's what Orikami Lava is also about, yeah. you know, that contrast, that looking into, as you said, like every part of work, that detailed work, Yes, it comes down to the details. It does, it does. And that's why I actually remember very well when I came first to the office. Yeah. You're looking into the details that every guest can see. Yeah, it comes down to senses, right? What you look at is how you gauge your reaction on. And I think my relationship with color started with my first job uh, when I worked for a regional makeup brand called Mikyaji. And it used to be crazy because I had to match Pantone colors, solid color chips to makeup shades. So you can imagine eyeshadows, foundations, lipsticks, nail polishes, the works. The brand itself was so colorful. We had patterns and prints in our packaging and the retail store was so much fun. And I realized that colors were narrating a personality. And colors was something that you can connect from one individual to another. You know, that is something you can easily uh, group you know, a set of like-minded individuals too. So I think that's where my love for color and the strength of color I see yes. gets drawn from. Totally uh, understand. So basically, on the, I mentioned that in the intro, uh, you know, um, shortly that you are the co-founder of Orikami Lab yes. as well and uh, gave you a sm- uh, short background. And we're going to dig deeper a little bit more yeah. uh, into this, uh, when we look into the chapters, when we look into like the past work, but yes. past uh, life chapters. One thing which I, I found interesting when I looked online is people describe you as a designpreneur. Oh, yeah. Obviously, it makes sense when you're yes. entrepreneur in design. Yeah. What do you understand under designpreneur? I realized, uh, but not just being an entrepreneur, but how much I became embedded into a client's product ecosystem was that I was also, you know, working for their... Sorry to interrupt, this is, by the way, the cut. (laughs) That's Rocco. That's Rocco, also part of the podcast. Yes, let's not forget her. She's an important resident of this uh, future-forward office culture that we're trying to... Propagate another team this member region. of Yes. <laughs> so yeah, uh, I, I mean, it was also kind of a humor at other people coming up with their own terms with entrepreneur. It was crazy. Like we had geekpreneurs and like retailpreneurs, and I was like, hey, why can't I be a designpreneur? And yeah, so it was more of a humor thing and more of realizing that I became emotionally attached to what the customer, what the client was building for society or for retail or for leisure. It just, and I think it's because we became part of the conversation that I was like, I'm not just being an entrepreneur of my own story and what I, what's the impact I want to do to society is also what they want to do with society. And I'm becoming part of that conversation as well. Led me to realize that I'm a designpreneur by the end of it. I'm using my specialties as a designer to help other people, you know, 
create better stories, deliver better products. I found a very interesting short sentence, which actually kind of summarized that as well, but it's also very typical to you. You said once, design is more than just what you see, it's what you feel. Yes. Yeah, it's a reaction. And, you know, people debate that between design and art, but I always tell them, talk about shopping for a chair. You know, when you sit on that right chair, Yeah. That reaction you get, that moment of realization, when you feel like that chair belongs to you, that was done as a result of good designing, not just art. I keep saying, you know, when, when it comes to design, how you feel to things, you know, design will encourage you to buy the product and to live with it. How you feel it is what makes you tell others about yes. the product. Oh, yeah. of mouth. Yes, yes, and definitely. that's so important in entrepreneurship. I mean, I saw this uh, online, what you mentioned once, and like, this is a typical quote of not just a designer, but also an entrepreneur. Yes, definitely. And that's what I can see in, in you as well. A designpreneur, an entrepreneur, was looking into how you communicate that message. Yes. And how to let that person feel so that that person can communicate this to others. Yes. And that's, that's actually quite unique nowadays. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I feel like now, but the speed at which products are launching in the market, thanks to the internet, you know, with Kickstarter and other platforms, people are finding many ways to display it, to alter the aesthetics. But the story never fails and the story never lies. You know, the story behind your product, the idea as to what got you to realize that you need to do this, that you need to set out to do something for a society for other group of people to not just profit from it, but to work hard, to compromise, to sacrifice for this, for this greater good. I think that is the story that people connect to. By the end of it, you know, human beings are an ecosystem of emotions. And stories frame that, stories depict that, you know. And that is something that is the core of Orikami Lab, to make sure that not just the product, but the stories come alive. Because the stories never die. They last a lifetime. And they last for a lifetime. Yeah. That's very, very yeah. nice one. Um, as you know, you know, this podcast is all about looking back yes. a little bit. And how, yeah. how, what happened in the past that you become that person who you are today? Um, and I know you for like since end of 2016 when I, I, I first met you as a very detailed oriented person, but also as you said, like someone who is looking not just into this design, also into the impact of it, how yes. people feel to it. So when I look back, um, what do you think was one of the major triggers, major experiences in your life where made you think a little bit more about design, uh, how products look like. What was there any occasion it was, was there uh, something in your childhood? Oh, yeah. I, remember, like, ah, I used to oh, so play with my that first and I hated it, how it looked like. <laughs> okay, so my first, it's actually thanks to my mom. So what happened was as a kid, I was not that confident and I was not focused on myself. I did what I was told. It was more of that. So okay. if... I was recommended so many different hobbies, like playing the piano, let's say playing golf. So, so and so, because my mom, she came from a family that was very arts oriented. My grandfather, he was a photojournalist. 
Um, she has a cousin who was a very good painter. So she's like, okay, let's teach you painting. Let's teach you sketching. Let's teach you, you know, how to take photos. And I would do it. I would just do it. I was like, okay, fine. This is fun. This is interesting. So creative. Yeah. Very creative it, approach. She made me very creative. And even in terms of school, it was a very academic-oriented environment. And I was a good student in terms of I knew how to memorize what I was reading. But otherwise, I did not truly excel at it. I was, you know, pretty much an average student. But the one class that I actually got great feedback from, had a good connection with, was with my arts teacher. That moment, I did not even realize, is there more to this? You know, it was more of, I'm just grateful that I even have such a class that I can go to every day and look forward to, make something that the teacher loves, gives me productive feedback on. You know, it was the first time I would get feedback that taught me something instead of brought me down as a person. So it was like a wealth of knowledge that I never wanted to let go of. And then slowly when it came to the career decision moment, still that was decided for me, but the option I remember thinking was um, architecture. I had still no idea about the term design. You know, I, I was not a curious person, so me trying to research about topics or subjects or courses or majors was never going to happen. I was given a set of brochures, all engineering related, because my parents wanted me to be a third generation engineer. Mm -hmm. And I just rebelled and decided I want to be an architect because I can sketch. I wanted to keep that habit going. And mm -hmm. I thought architecture will teach me that. So, but you know, I realize the connections now. I still did not realize it then. I mean, I ended up, I remember doing high school while I was trying to come up with my career and my future, I became really close friends with Hitain then. That's when I met Hitain. And he had gone to a design college in India. Still no curiosity, mm -hmm. nothing piqued me, nothing triggered me. And I remember when I did my first year of engineering in Canada, uh, he would send me his work and his courses for feedback. You know, his sketches. He was studying communication design. So sketches of different dots and lines and illustrations. And then these posters. And it was so nice to look at. I yes. really enjoy giving feedback. But I never realized this is something I could do. But I did realize that my self-awareness had set in. And I realized where my weaknesses were lying. Not my strengths. You know, suddenly I realized that engineering is not my suit. I can't push myself holistically and spiritually. It does bring you down. It internalizes, you know, your mood, the way you think about life. That's not healthy for a young person who's so far away from family. So trying to calibrate and focus on that, I came back home to Dubai, where my parents, uh, when I... When I did fail the first year of engineering, they were like, okay, your next investment of education won't be that high. Now you're going to study regionally, but this time maybe you can pick. Now I was dating Hitain then, yes. so I was very much involved in his curriculum. Yes. I knew exactly what he was doing, his concepts, his projects, internships. Mm -hmm. I started to know about design agencies, but still it never brought me to that idea that is this something that I can do.
So it took, you know, it took me a lot of time. I, was, I, I don't think the fire had set at that moment. Okay. It, but it was about to, just right after. Is, I went to this college over here called Manipal University. Its Indian umbrella is quite well known. So my dad was like, okay, let's go to this place. Though my school grades were outstanding and phenomenal, yes. they, were, they wanted me there. And I decided on marketing. I thought that's creative under business administration. That's me just being open-minded, it seems. And he was like, oh, no, you know, the class is full. It's booked. Why don't you try media and communications? There's design in it. So that man, that academic counselor in Manipal University, put the first seed. That's when suddenly my thoughts just went into focus. I was, what I was seeing was like this 4K version of my life. And I was like, design, of course, it just makes so much of sense. Yes. I was still thinking visually, yeah. you know, but I was like, it makes so much of sense. And that's when my first trigger as a designer had started. And that I started, that was my first trigger. That was trigger. You, so you explained <laughs> more or less a lot of years yeah. in a summary, like last uh, uh, few minutes. I wanted to quickly go back to yes. the beginning. Yes. And I love that, you know, the, how it leads to that trigger yes. when you just explained. And I want to really dig deeper into this. But um, when I just go back into, you know, seeing yourself, your story into a book, you know, and that's biography. Yeah. Audiobiography. Um, I'm very curious to, to, to know what is the first chapter about? Is the first chapter about your childhood? Is the first chapter about the time, or the people you uh, grew up? What is the first chapter about? So when I, you know, when I open the book, and I want to actually talk about the cover and the title later, because I want to see what are the chapters actually <laughs> to look into what is the title about. Because in, in other podcasts in the past, I jumped straight into the cover and the title. But then actually later on, I we looked into what are the actual chapters. So when I open your book and I look into the table of content, what is the first chapter about? Yeah, I think the first chapter is my childhood because um, How do they you remember are, your childhood? Oh my God, I barely do. And I think the stuff that I do do, it's more of a serious, of a sad nature. Because as a human being, unfortunately, it's the negative situations that tend to imprint on you harder than the happy situations. Um, but... Uh, I was always told that I was very mature and very serious, and I, that was due to the fact that um, I was born right after my parents had gotten married. So the same year, I was I was a wedding baby, basically how they term it. So I was I was married to them. Is how I would joke. I was not just their daughter; I was also their husband and wife. You know. Um, living their marriage, celebrating their wedding anniversaries alongside them, making it work. Uh, because I came from a very dysfunctional family. And I realized that, I think that's where I realized individuals can be very different. Temperaments can be very different. Um, and, it, and I took it upon myself to make the family work as much as I could. So that's where, part of my temperament has still originated from. So childhood is very, it's, it's, 
where it starts. And so then my brother, you know, when he came and my relationship with him, it's partly motherly, partly sisterly, partly friend. And he was, he was my focus of good energy. You know, he, if I remember him, I remember myself laughing. I remember myself being a kid. And I think it's so important for one to remember themselves as a kid, to remember that innocence. It's so, and if you cannot remember it, it's, I feel like it's very unfortunate. And that's one challenge I tend to, uh, it tends to be for me, trying to remember the good sides, trying to remember the sides when I did something naughty. Yes. Apparently I was a very good kid. And how you learn from it. <laughs> yeah, how I learned from it. It's learnings, you know. You like, said you've been seen as mature. Have yeah. you seen yourself, or if you look back now, uh, how did you, from your own point of view, has experienced the childhood? Yeah, I think I was very serious. Also? I was very serious. So you perceived that as well? Yes, I, I, I was very emotionally sensitive. Uh, we have this thing, because we have a very heavy spiritual background. So there's something called an energy conductor. So if someone is sad in the room, you feel sad too. And that was me. Okay. I would really get affected by people around me. I would not talk, so I started talking very late, two and a half, three years. Uh, silence. So I would observe a lot. I would observe other people. I would see what other people are doing. Um, and it, I think that's, that has shaped me up as a designer too. Observing. That looking first, listening first, and yes. talking after. Um, I think that's where that love of detail comes in because when you're not talking, you spend so much time just looking at other stuff in your surroundings. And yeah, I was a very serious person. I still remember that. It comes also down to the analyzing the part, uh, analyzing the environment, you know, oh, observing, yeah. analyzing, and then making up your action or yes. opinion. Yes. Which actually also, when it comes to, um, we're going to talk about this later, about the human centered approach yes. as well, analyzing the problems around you before you come up with solutions yes. you know putting the, the person in the center yes the person you want to support definitely uh, sort of. so what did you grow up which which city oh my god place? this is okay so i was oh born in Ghaziabad, up in india and i was there for about two years then my dad he got a job in qatar doha shifted there for about a couple of months when my brother was born. And then I think when he was nine, 10 months old, which was the year of 93, we shifted to Abu Dhabi. And that was home until 2006. And then we came to Dubai. So, so do you remember quite a lot from India when you the first few years? I do, I do. I remember spending a lot of time with my great grandparents. I actually had my first dog in Ghazibad, my first pet. That, that relationship is very dear to me. I would remember eating and drinking alongside her, you know. They would also give me food in bowls, mimicking the pet bowls that they have <laughs> over there. I was that obsessed. Um, and I mean, it was a very, we came from a very poor family, but we were so, so happy. Like we had all these different family members all gathered around in a very small sitting area. And, and I was the second grandchild, uh, the daughter of the eldest son. So, you know, everyone used to play with me and have this attention, try to make me laugh. For them, happiness was so important. I remember that so much though. It was so much fun, that and my dog. 
<laughs> love that so much. Um, and then Abu Dhabi, Abu Dhabi becomes very blurry so because you know nursery and then school and you don't remember stuff apart from that because the curriculum kind of took over your life. Yeah, your friends took over your life. So the family side of things just started blurry about uh, got a little out of focus. Um, it's a different environment after all. It, it was different environment. It was. I mean, especially for my parents, I mean, we were still so young that we adapted to the new environments very easily. Is what I was told, but I think for my parents it was a change, a drastic change. I mean, weather, environment, the way societies functioned. Uh, but luckily, the community hailing from India was still quite significant, so they were able to make some friends or families over here as well. That actually contributed to us in a circle per se yeah. of who we could go to, who we could rely on, uh, because. I mean, especially for them, trying to shift to an unknown country, uh, possibly alien in terms of language, uh, everything else, aesthetics, work, cars, food. It took them some time to adjust to it. But us kids, we had no idea. We just wanted a bed to jump on, course, I guess. As a, as, a, as a kid, everything is open. You know, yeah, the whole yeah. world is there to explore. Yeah, yeah we're explorers. <laughs> So when I when I think about right now the chapter one and you t tell me a little bit about the childhood, um, you said you're being seen as mature, but you also be, you know have the perception of you were very serious. I was. Yeah. What you say, you, do you wanna uh, do you see this chapter one as the first chapter? Uh, that the childhood, the ch childhood as first chapter. Yes. So when it comes to the first chapter, how would you describe it? What would be the title of that? The summary is the most, most difficult part sometimes. It is, it is. I have some key words, right? Because, I mean, I think, and I would probably pose it as a question that has come to me, that has been asked to me by my own parents many a times, by even my second family, Hitain's family, and even some of my friends who've known me for the longest of times. And I think that would be my summary line. When did I grow up too fast? And I think that reflects it perfectly. And do you have the answer to that question? No, I do not know when that <laughs> happened. I wish I did. You know, um, I always tell people that there's pros and cons of being mature and serious, and but that's what I've known. That's that's who I've known. So, do you see maturity or uh, being very serious? as something you don't relate to childhood in general? No, it, it absolutely does. To my life, to, to me, your life, yes. In, in, in general, do you see, like, in, in childhood, do you see that yeah, children, young kids, should not be too serious? Should not be oh, too they should not. They should not be serious. No, that's their time, you know? That's, yeah. They are the true forms of scientists and explorers at that age. I mean, I have a daughter now. She's one and a half years old. And watching her, I was like, I don't want her to wonder if she's going to get hurt or yes. if she should stop her. That's our responsibility yeah. to push it. But she should see what happens. Like, what if, what next? By herself. By herself. Yes, I, yes. I think that's, yeah. that's precious. 
and I, I and I think I I I hang on to that a lot more because, like I had said, I don't remember myself as that. I do not remember myself letting go of being curious. That was not in my nature. It's something I had to teach myself or shape myself ever since even when I became a parent because to be with her made me become a kid again. So if, if I don't remember myself as a kid then, I'm definitely a kid now. <laughs> definitely, definitely. <laughs> it's interesting that all the way around because usually, yes. you know, but that's what I love working with kids and I mentioned it in the other podcast is that with kids, they still have dreams regardless if they ha are impossible, you know, being an astronaut, whatever. They still have dreams and they still believe in them. And then later on in adult life, you know, yeah. you've been told, be realistic. Yes, it's important. But you've also been told that certain ideas are impossible. And you should not even yeah. start. You should not even start thinking of this. And that prevents you of innovation, of being like, you know, curious, being explorer. And it's not even that. They're so committed to their thought. They're so committed. They're so one with their thought. For them, if they think, I do not want to sleep right now, they will definitely not sleep right now. For us, we will push ourselves to sleep, you know, hoping to be better versions ourselves seven hours down the line. For them, is if I don't want to sleep right now, I'm not going to sleep. I'm going to play some more. I'm going to read some more. And that's it. There's no strings attached. There's no concerns. For them, there's no future. The moment is now. And that is so precious. That's a good keyword. The now, the present, living yes. in the present is something where kids or whether adults can learn a lot from kids, yes. living in the present. And that's something we as adults completely forget. And I mentioned that in the other podcast, in the same podcast, I remember that very well, that living in that moment is something or what we forgot and which prevents us of experience. Yes. Where we are right now, the smell. And the other, other day I had Maria Patz on, on the podcast. Um, and she's a co-founder of Mind, Body, Soul Happiness mm. Center in, mm. in Dubai. I don't know if you know. Yes, yes, I've heard of it. She's a co-founder and she's um, into meditation, yoga, mm. but she is a true believer in living in the present, knowing yes. where you are, smelling it, seeing it, hearing it. You can relate that to mindfulness, but it's something which we completely forget. Yes, but I would want to clarify when I what I mean by that because there's when I've had these conversations with other founders and entrepreneurs, they've been like, "But how do you strategize? How do you forecast? <laughs> Isn't that in direct contradiction?" I was like, "That's not what I mean. I mean is the emotion should not waver, come what may." even with a good or bad situation. That's it, you're centered. You are laughing when you go down as you go up. That is living in the moment where it's not affected by what life throws at you. And if you have that sense of mentality, then no one can beat you. That's it, you have already made it. Because once you have conquered and started channeling that state of mentality, that's it, that's it. Then everything else is just insignificant. Because if you let it take over you, if you let it consume you, you've already lost that life, basically. What you 
uh, when you just mentioned that, I, I, I keep thinking of, you know, we, we influenced, we are so much influenced by other people's opinions. Yeah. Um, and successes. And successes and role models. And, yeah. you know, we mirror ourselves to role models. And if we're not there, we are nothing. You know, we, we have to reach there. If not, then we are nothing. Yeah. So, that in other words, we're living always in the future. We're always living, we should be there. And yeah. then we are someone. And that's what, sadly enough, we teach young people as well nowadays. Or they have these role models. Teenage age as well, you know. They want to... You need to have someone, of course, it can be a mentor, but often it's been communicated in a way that, or in the society, that you have to do certain steps in order to be seen, in order to be yeah. recognized, in order to be listened. Yeah, I don't think that's the case now, though. I mean, thanks to the internet, anyone who wants to switch on their phone camera and speak about the world and broadcast their opinions, they easily can. They yes. easily can. And the people who are best doing it are the kids. But isn't, doesn't it come down to the point of what is the intention of the, the teenagers? You know, yes. They're just one looking for the fame sometimes. Yeah, they're looking for appreciation, and likes, and loves, is, yeah, shares. Is, that, that's what their love comes down to. But then I think it's up to the people around them. And I know it's very easy to say this, but it's a constant battle to constantly calibrate that child's mind to be to tell them this is not what life is. This is just not it. And once this dies, then who are you? You know, that's a question you'll need to ask that kid every day. Uh, and I think that's how you. And it comes down to how parents and how teachers um, reward efforts and reward achievements and then reward failures at the same time. That will change the way a child and a teenager would think about their life, so much so. Very true, yeah. So tell me a little bit about your teenage age. <laughs> so um, how was how was Richie when she, you know, growing out of the childhood? Oh, Richie was not nice. I mean, she was so sad. I was bullied. I was How's heavily bullied. Okay, so in from my being school. very serious, mature, No, because, uh, because I was Indian and because of the way I looked and my name. So, you know, Richie became That's Richie it. Rich, became Ricardo. Became, you got labeled. I got labeled. Yeah. And, uh, and it was just boys and girls, even teachers. Um, ganging up on me emotionally, so much so. But at the same time, I did make different groups of friends, you know, um, people who sympathized or did not look at that as somewhat of a drawback. I studied in a very well-off school, which came with strings attached. That means you worked with kids who were also really, really well-off. And it was more of a very... What do you call it? An American traditional high school environment where the ones who are really well off grouped together. Even nationalities were grouped together. So we had Arab expats having one group of social circle. Mm -hmm. The Indians, also the Indians had two groups. So one was really nerdy, one that was really well off. <laughs> it was like facades. They wanted to belong to someone. They, everyone wanted to belong to someone, yeah. you know. Yeah. Uh, and I, I did not make that effort or I was not naturally part of that because I was so quiet. I did not have a sort of personality up until, I would say, high school. 
So it was really, really rough for me. I could not hang out to friends because for them, it became important who they were seen with too. Mm -hmm. That's how teenagers are. So I was affected by that. Um, Even in terms of friends outside of school, barely had it. So in terms of my social circle, it was very small, very insignificant. Uh, I was still very drawn into my parents' lives, not family, my parents and their marriage was still wound up by that because we still had that dynamic um, where sometimes I would treat them like my kids, like my babies, even at that time, very protective of them, let's say. So school life became more of trying to overcome each passing day, you know, where you feel like you had no place to go to. But I have no idea how I survived still with some smile on my face, still, (laughs) you know. I think that just... I think it was just maybe getting the right people at the right time mm-hmm. to distract me from the negativities. But no, teenage so you, years were really, really tough. So they were really tough. So you see these years as relatively tough, negative. No, Very sense, negative. negative. It's sense. something, thankfully, that has not shaped me, but I've lovingly forgotten. Like, that is a chapter I would probably not include at all because it's not going to give anything to anyone. Mm-hmm. It's someone. It's something that many people have gone through too, but it has not shaped me, thankfully. Yeah, I I wanted to mention that later, but I just see that right now as relevant. And I don't correct me if I'm wrong. You know, the, we had before the podcast a short conversation about your general approach, work approach, or also belief in saying that competitions nowadays are not mm. a way forward. It's about open collaboration. Mm. And you just told me about the teenage, you know, mm. being a teenager and, and isolating yourself or not joining another group. When you look back, do you see that there was there, is, there was something which brought you to the more to, later on into mindset to say, okay, hey, we can only achieve something when we collaborate. We not compete between groups or compete between, you know. Do you see some relation to that? I, I, I think at times I would because maybe not being part of that bubble made me look at it very holistically in terms of what is working, what isn't working. There might be some sense of genuine elements in the way people made friends in school, but you could very clearly see how people so easily laughed and you know, spent time together because of this physical appearance, aesthetic of where you come from, what you do, what your parents do. And I think that was so important as a teenager. But these thoughts naturally never came to me. Um, I never dressed up or my body language never reflected that. It was more more like, okay, I'm in school, you know, I was going to go by and I'm going to go back home. Things were not there to look forward to. It's more of I need to conquer this day without trying to think of anything depressing. That was my challenge. Surviving. 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 It was that act of survival. And I think that, yeah, I mean, now if I'm talking about it, that act of survival is still there. It's still there. Maybe being with an entrepreneur, you know, you need to have that survival instinct. Especially in the current environment. Yeah, Yeah, so, yeah, I think that helped because I didn't try to hurt myself. And I I remember not going to depression, which I think is more of, 
I think that that's where my ego came in. That you are not going to be like those kids. Even if you're getting bullied, you are not going to go back home crying. That you want to cry, you cry in the bathroom. You go back home as if nothing has happened. I really wanted to make sure that my parents did not know that this was happening to me. Because I didn't want to put that stress onto mm-hmm. them. I felt like this was my experience. Why should I burden them? Yeah. So I think there was a bit of survival and ego coming into play in a very productive sense. Yes. In a very productive mix. And yeah. I think it's still there. Yeah. That if I have taken this on, I'm going to... It's a legacy. It's not, it's, not a, it's, not a, it's not a trend or a facade that I've not set up Arikami Lab to make it look fancy and then wrap it up. No, it's something that I want to see still alive 50 years down the line. Mm-hmm. So you're not building and something... And if I do not recognize it, I respect it, that it's, it's adapted to a different society, to a different ecosystem. Yeah. You know? I, I want to create a legacy of belief and thinking, values. That's where I want to distribute. Which stay for a long time. Yes, so. yes. So... So what happened then? So teenage age, we don't, didn't want okay, to, we so don't want to include this in any chapter. So you're skipping this I, chapter. I, I would say until 10th grade. So let's say 10th grade was 2004. God, how old was I? That's a very tricky question. Let's see. I'm, I'm currently opening up the calculator on my phone. Calculating <laughs> the, age, uh, the age you were. Okay, so I was 16, okay. right? So 16, <laughs> believe me, this might sound like a, a chick flick moment, and I'm very aware about that, but I'm still going to say it. When I first started speaking to a boy, I changed, okay? <laughs> I've gotten over that sentence now. Yeah, I know, it's a very chick flick moment, but it What's was not changed? just... What changed? Tell me. And oh, details. by the way, that guy was Hitain, so as you can see, he's a very prominent okay. factor in my life. Okay. Uh, it was the first time I started a conversation. I had never started a conversation. So you, he, so you, you approached him. I That's approached how it started him. All. You approached him. I approached okay. him. Uh, it was a very funny incident, but I approached him, bottom line, and I've never done that. And that kind of triggered, you know, this, this sense of, first you feel vulnerable, right? Because you yeah. feel like you are going to that person, I'm going to get rejected. Are they going to laugh at me? Exactly. Are they going to turn away? Then maybe I need to like turn all the way around to get their attention. You know, so all these thoughts were crossing my head, but it just came down to a normal acknowledgement of what I was saying. And he gave his response and the conversation was over. And there was like this lightning moment of, oh my God, I just did this. I started a conversation. I approached a person who was not a girl, by the way, who was a guy. As a teenager, that you're so conscious about the opposite gender, right? Mm. That you're like, okay, this was not so bad. And that also gave you self-confidence. It, because oh, you that's where it started. That from yourself. No, as I, I did just not. Listen from the roots. Yeah. No, because I've never done that. People, yeah. all the friends I've had, they've always felt sorry for me. I knew that, you know. And they were so outgoing. They were so popular. They were so talkative. They were. You know, they were so colorful. They're, they're the ones who approached me. They made me comfortable. They did all the handiwork of making this friendship with me happen. And I had to do it the other way around with this guy. So it was, it was a shift in my system. And 
how I was an individual, that this quiet introvert sitting in the shadows suddenly had to step out into the light and say a very stupid sentence, but had to say something first. But you were also exposed yourself to be I, more vulnerable yes. in the end of the day. Yes, and I decided that I should still do that. Yes, because you saw the positive outcome. The posi- I mean, the, you know, the, well, the, I think that helped, but more confidence. yes, persistence, persistence pays. And that's something I realized even with starting with Aoi Lab. You know, being a designer over here in UAE, and I'm going to, I'm going to be jumping from present to past because you can <laughs> see the connection. Time jumps. But being a designer over here complements your introvert personality because you do not need to necessarily, you know, sit face to face with a client, get exposed to rejections as harshly as they tend to get rejected by, let's say, your boss, the creative director. Uh, you're not exposed to the ups and downs of life. You just have to go in, do a factory block process, and go back home. It's so safe. It's so comfortable. And as an introvert, it just works for you until, bam, you decide to be an entrepreneur. <laughs> and you have to suddenly present yourself as someone of value. Mm-hmm. You know, that's where persistence comes in, self-confidence, Self-assuredness, right? That even that person does not accept you, you've not wavered. Yes. I think you know, so I think there was always a sense of connections that I see now when I look back that, oh, this is where it came from. You, you mentioned something very interesting about that perception, you know, of, of entrepreneurs, like being seen as more extrovert, being oh, more yeah. like out, going out, sell, selling, you know, networking, etc., etc. Um, and I can totally relate to that because I'm a kind of more also an introvert as well. Yes. Um, so there is some kind of, you know, what others expect from you when you're building a business. You need to build a network. You need to approach other oh, yes. You have to do X, Y, Z. Yes. But at the same time, I can see also your current, like, relationship, you know, is, um, is Orikami Lab. You're complementing each other. Yes. And I think this, com- because when you say, when you said about the white-black contrast, yes. if you're on the black or on the white <laughs> side, one of the, is the introvert side, the other side is, as I know him, is it, he's an ex- extrovert. Yes. I think he, so you're complimenting each and other. And now we both have gone to the black side. And you, which is, which is <laughs> the, okay, you're both in the black side, oh, so yeah, yeah. for everyone who is just listening, uh, that's the workstation, the work, the, the yes. laptops and the, and the PCs and the Macs over there. And the, and the more entertaining part is on the white side. <laughs> you can see that here right now. That's where my kid is at. The, okay, the kid is on the white yeah, side. Yeah, and the, black, and the, the meetings, work, the, work the brainstorming is on the white side. Ah, and then the... The, the delivering is delivery. on the dark side. Ah, okay. And now we call it the dark side. I have no idea why. It's the black side. Yeah. <sighs> But that's you see, but if you see my Instagram profile, I've actually um, labeled myself as a social introvert. No, I haven't seen that. So I balance it, right? So if you see my private life with my friends, it's I have, oh my God, I think I have three to four friends. That's it. I don't try to network with anyone else. No acquaintances, no friends of friends. It's just these four chicks I know, I'm happy with. They get me going, we have a great relationship, that's it. But on my work side, I just know too many people. <laughs> too many people, too many people, and because I have to. Yes. That is what the model and the principle and me as an entrepreneur sits on. So 
that's how I started labeling myself that I'm a social introvert. I have to do it. I actually do enjoy doing it. It's not faking. But when it comes to work, it's so different. And when it comes to your life, it's so different. I'm private about that. But I'm very public about what I do with the Origami Lab. I'm very public to exposing myself, to offering, you know, something to that person, even in the face of rejection. It's so different. I think it's like this dual side of me, that way. Mm-hmm. That my private side is more vulnerable, too precious. But Arikami Lab is for everyone, you know, not just me. And yes. I want everyone to enjoy it and celebrate what it represents. Yeah, and I yeah. think this is also the contrast where we're talking about, you know, yeah. finding the balance, the contrast, black yes. and white. This is very similar to yeah, private. Yeah, it is, it is. Let me go back to the, when you were age 16. Yes. <laughs> From 16 towards the, the study times, you yes. know, where you became a student. Tell me a little bit more about this time, because I see this is like chapter two now. Oh, yes. When you skipped. Yes. Uh, so I think, yeah, age 16 would age. be... Uh, yeah, would be the next chapter. And I remember when I came back to school, the summer after I first started a conversation, oh my goodness, my <laughs> dynamic had changed in school. And by the end of 10th grade, if I just jumped to that whole year, I was friends with the people bullying me. You know, because I remember there was a tradition that if I came in, oh, okay, there she is, prank calls and stuff like that. But then I started talking back. But you I was, responded. I responded. Yeah, yeah, I responded. answered back with laughter. I started taking what they said lightly, and I said, and I'm going to give it to you with, you know, a set of kings, you know. I, I'm, I turned into a very healthy conversation. Bullying is not healthy. It really affects people, but I laughed in the face of what they were saying. And that changed their reactions too. They were like, she can talk. Mm-hmm. And she just spoke back. And yeah. she has a temperament. But you know what? We actually liked this and we enjoyed it. And over a period of time, you know, the dynamic in school had changed. And it was all to do with me changing myself, not them changing. It was just to do with how I started responding. How you reacted. How I reacted. Actually, yes. actually made it better for me. Yeah. You know? So up until the age 16, I thought I was a victim of this life. That Oh, shit, this is how my life is going to be. Poor me. You know, so on and so forth. But when I started changing myself, realizing I need to speak for myself, for what I think. I need to change this environment, this mood that has been created in school about me, and only I can do that. No savior, no bodyguard, no teacher, no supervisor of mine. It actually brought back a lot of healthy, positive changes because I took the effort for myself. Mm -hmm. You know? Um, And things just became better. You know, it, it really helped. How important, because when I just listened to you, you talk about reacting, acting as well. Yes. Is that correct? Then I just understood you, you act now. You act on your own, you know, uh, you, you're acting, you're less reacting you, um, on other people's opinions. You're acting by yourself yes. On, yes. on your own, yes. by, by action. Sometimes some opinions do settle in at a point of time where I do become a student of those opinions and see where they can help me. 
because I do feel sometimes sticking to one theory, one thought does not help a person, uh, especially with the dynamic and the speed of different conversations you are encountering every day as a person and with the work that I do, that I need to be a receptor to other people's thoughts and opinions and to see how that navigates the working relationship I have with them. But you see, that's still me doing it. And I realize that's still separate for that's still separate from the core Richie. How I position and how much I adapt, I'm not losing myself to it. Mm-hmm. It's something I'm willingly doing. So if more so, I'm gaining from it. Because why not? Maybe that mode of thinking, that principle, that opinion, might just make me a better person. And if it doesn't, I just drop it. That's it. There's no fighting a battle. There's no... Before I used to react very strongly to how people did their ways of life, worked uh, with creatives. I was very possessive about how people dealt with designers over here. Um, and I used to you know, react back very harshly. We had even uh, said some very strong words to a client because I was like, that's the only time they'll take me seriously. And I realized that that's not the way to do it. There's a way of uh, anger and loudness Mm. does not change anything. Actually listening and having a productive conversation is which leads to realization. And and it makes you only weaker. It only makes you weaker, not that person. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And being seen as weak as well, that you cannot communicate in a more constructive... And you're emotional. Yeah, you're more emotional. You cannot argue with words. You argue with loudness. Yeah, it's going against what I'm advocating. Exactly, Which was, you know... But see, that was a learning experience for me too. Once I calmed down, thought about it, I realized... That was not the way to go. But you see, I would still say that was still the luxury of being an entrepreneur because being a designer working for a brand or an organization, you don't get the luxury of making these mistakes. You don't get the luxury of looking at yourself, being retrospective. And it's so ironic because designer is channeling your state of mind, is thinking about things, is working with intuition and emotion. So I feel like you should be um, exposed to different situations, to different environments, to realize how you can learn from that and channel that into ideas for projects. Uh, Because designers are amazing when it comes to empathy and observation and connecting with um, elements, with people, with topics, with environments. They can go from one topic to the other. I mean, there's so many other designers that I've admired who are 20 years my senior, Mm -hmm. and they read books about science fiction, different forms of birds, you know, um, pharmacologists producing food, and learning all that, you know, being students of that, and understanding that you're not bigger and that you're not the know-it-all, you're not mm. representing ego, really brings out amazing results in your work. You come up with thoughts and factors and insights that are outstanding. Yes. So that's why I realized that I cannot, I need to listen. I need to 
understand and I need to respect all the different individuals I come across and especially respect the fact that their lack of knowledge when it comes to design is affecting how they perceive it. Mm. And I need to teach them first. Yes. Then I need to be the knowledge provider on that. Yes. So yeah. the educational part is yes. first. So I'm going to go back again yeah. from the study time. <laughs> so because what you just said about, you know, the listening part nowadays, and there is a very interesting TED talk. Um, a couple of years ago, I attended the Houses of Parliament, uh, was volunteering okay. there in London, and there was one, what is his name, he talked about the skill of listening. Hmm. And usually when we are listening to someone, yeah. we usually made up our response already without letting the other person finish. Yes. We already know the answer. Yeah. And that's when you observe that by yourself, you actually understand that you not let other people finishing their thought process. Yeah. You already made up your opinion. Yes. And that itself, when you all know that about yourself, you know how you actually respond usually. Yeah. And you know, you usually can be very judgmental, but yes. actually observe yourself. Yeah. Yes, that's very important. Yeah. So study time. How hmm. rich even uh, so in, college. In, in a college time, exactly, yes, college in college time. time. Um, because you did study media and communication. Yes. Photography, multimedia, graphic design. Yes. Very creative. Yes. In so all kind of sense. It was a three years curriculum, and each term within the three sets of semesters, you touched on every topic that came under media. Now, when we say design is a big umbrella, media was even bigger. Yeah. Right, so we studied radio, we studied newspaper publishing, we studied um, uh, we studied photography, videography, uh, we studied um, television auditing, we studied producing, we studied multimedia came in, and then graphic design came in. Mm -hmm. Graphic design came in for two semesters. In the third year, it was specialization. By the time first year came, because the academic counselor had put that th seed in me about design, I already knew from first day what I wanted to do was follow in Hidane's footsteps. So I was very aware and very focused about what I wanted to learn. Mm -hmm. I was also deciding that as a college student, what I would take seriously, what I would not. How would that affect my role as a designer in the industry? But at the same time, I realized that maybe studying all of these other subjects that are not at all relevant to what I might be doing, there might be certain tools and elements that I might need to encounter later on that if I do embrace it properly right now, I might not get so overwhelmed by it, which actually came to the advantage, you know, studying how to, let's say, set up equipment. Uh, You've been uh, exposed to all kinds of mediums. Yes. Um, setting up from... It's basically, it's all about marketing. Yes. Marketing, you know, written, uh, voice, yes. audio, everything. Broadcasting, being, broadcasting. A, being a TV anchor. They taught us how to be a TV anchor and the process behind it. So, but the only issue with that was that I could not specialize that well. I realized my, speci my experience in specializing in graphic designing as much as the peers I know now was going to be a weakness for me. So then what I did was that Hitain would send me his curriculum from India because he studied in a true blue design, um, yeah, 
design-based uh, curriculum. So I would take his assignments, um, his exams, and I would work towards that. Mm-hmm. He would give me assignments because by that time he was two years my senior, so he had more knowledge when it came to design. And that's what I did. I went online. Thankfully, by that time, tutorials had launched in the internet. So that way, I, I started teaching myself. Mm-hmm. Because I'd already realized what I wanted to do, and I wanted to grow at it super-duper fast, while respecting the other you know, subjects that were coming my way. But I did have a conflict with that college. Because I, my self-awareness had reached a peak height, I realized what they were doing wrong because I as a student knew what I wanted. Yes. Which is a luxury for a student because my students actually do not know what they want. Usually you're spending the time at the university just to passing time. You know, yes. And then to figure it but out But I afterwards. knew. I knew what I wanted. Yeah. And I mean, so I, you I, saw the university time or the time where you studied there as, as wasted time? Would you say that? I would say it was partly you wasted. Knew it already, you know, I you knew already. I knew it already. And plus the, the educational system was not that strong. Uh, the professors that had come, which we had all agreed to, was because of the budgets they had, the mm-hmm. college budgets they had, they could not audit the right professor for the right curriculum. I mean, the only professor I learned from, and I still remember and I still treasure him, was our uh, photography course professor. He was outstanding. He taught me so much about, and I think that helped me with my role as an art director in advertising. He had shaped me up for that, which kind of made me think about, you know, the educators and the role and the lack of auditing and respect and seriousness when it comes to hiring the right people to teach you the right programs. I was so sensitive to the knowledge that they were imparting, which was literally downloaded PDFs from the internet and they were just reading out from that. I, it's you still know, happening now. Yeah, it's still yeah, happening. And because I was so aware about what I wanted to do, I was frustrated. And I was like, I have to still sit because attendance, attendance yeah. directly affected your final results. So I was sitting there just to show up, just to comply. But isn't that the wrong message where we usually teach, you know, even, even it's happening today, you know, yeah. majority of university attendance. Yes, of course, attendance is super important. Don't yeah. get me wrong. It's actually, you know, key. It's a soft yes. skill. You know, you have to show up. But if you're only being judged based on the attendance and yes. you're in the you know, success rate of a university, yes. nearly 100%, yes. then it's just about being there yes. and not, it's not necessarily the, the work you're putting in yeah. being judged. You know? I know. It's just being there and just the existence. Yeah. And that's actually not necessarily the point of an education no, system. No, it's not. It's not. And it, 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 I remember by the time final year came, I was so scared because I realized the standards I thought had to be there for a professional designer, they were not providing that. And I was like, what am I going to do in those six months between graduation and getting my first job? And I have to make sure it's the right one. And portfolios, you know, you have to show something tangible. What do yes. you show? That's, so it was all self-made. Mm-hmm. And luckily... Luckily, with college, because I'd already proclaimed myself as a designer, and my parents knew I was working and practicing, uh, at that time, uh, they are active members of a spiritual organization called Out of Living. And over there, we were exposed to so many different members who were 
from you know really good companies or starting their own companies or anything of volunteering they needed designers to come up with brand identities flyers so my exposure to freelancing had started first year of college itself so 2007 i actually had started working as a designer too so doing your yes i actually had clients day one I took it for free though. I was like the first three years. I was like, I'm not going to ask them to pay me because I need to learn. And they're they're trusting me to create something that they are using. Naturally, I went back and polished it up for them because, (laughs) my goodness, when you look at your old work, you are so judgmental about it. Go back to the you know 80s, 90s when you look at pictures how you were dressed. like similar to your portfolio as a designer. How could I decide it this way? That hits you harder. You're like, oh my goodness, this is blasphemy. (laughs) You know, so it's interesting. Like you know when. Designer looks back to their old portraits, yeah, like know. when you look on the childhood picture. How could you dress yourself like this? Yeah, so, um. uh, <laughs> and I think that really helped me shape up my skills, mm-hmm. doing hands-on work, doing actual projects, you know, industry-related experience taught me harder than college-related curriculum. Mm-hmm. Which also made me realize that, hey, if we actually had a best practices curriculum where actual clients came in, made us go through the process, maybe we will understand better how the industry works. Maybe being young designers in an agency, we would be better employees because we would understand the process better. Luckily, I did because I did do it on the side and Hitain was there to guide me you know, on the ups and downs, on budgeting, on timelines, on presenting your work, you know, how to detach emotions from it, how to take rejection productively. All that, I did not learn it from the assignments, uh, the exams I did. It was from the projects I did, you know. That helped me. But these projects were initiated by yourself, you know, you reached out to them or oh, they did. I mean, it, it, they were, there were not many designers, uh, volunteers over here in, in UAE. Yeah. I think it was just me and three other people who had just put their hands up and said, hey, we can help out. You know, they wanted uh, meditation posters, event posters. Mm-hmm. That time, uh, Facebook event groups were not that big. So you still had to send out flyers for approvals to email community and stuff. Mm. So that became our thing, you know, like getting it printed, samples approved, colors approved, uh, doing photography. And it was a whole other mix. It was actually so much fun. And it was a little intimidating when it came to the presentation aspect, you know, exposing your work and what you've did. Presentation skills. Present- yes, presenting, yes. Explaining. That's, I think yes. this is the educational part where you also, you know, mentioned earlier before. Explaining yes. your clients why you have done X, Y, Z of design. Yes. What is the story behind? Yes. That's it. Presenting, when we yes. talking about print, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, yes. but this is where it comes to designers. Explaining what was the, food, uh, uh, the thought process. Yes, without design. being subjective. Yes. Because you would never ever want to say that this is your personal point of view. You need to attach that air of confidence that it's not just the clients, but their target audience will also connect with this. So the terms I, me, myself, you cannot include that. It has to be, which I realized, you know, later on was the discovery process where you take and research from the client's efforts, Mm -hmm. put it together, 
give up the symbolism of how do I symbolically depict these words that have been attached. It all became kind of a, a, let's say, after multiple set of failures, multiple lack of communications, um, failing learning, failing learning, failing learning, that you realize, okay, this is the way to do it, this is the way to package it. This is to navigate the conversation. Sometimes the clients, the people you work with, um, who I would like to call, who I would love to call partners normally, is that uh, sometimes they're not sure how to direct feedback because they're not sure how will the feedback result in the outcome that they're looking for. So you need to help them deliver the right feedback that benefits both sides, that benefits the bottom line of the project, which, if I'm saying it right now, is so complex, but that's why I said designer's intuition comes in handy over here, that sense of gut, the sense of listening, observing, Mm -hmm. uh, psychology. Many successful designers have studied psychology for this case. You know, we've joked about it internally, that designers could actually be better therapists. <laughs> That's a nice picture. I just see it in front of me. You know, but because you're listening most of the time. Yeah, Half the yeah. time you're just listening. That's very true, yeah. But also reflecting of what the person yes. says. Listening is one thing, but also digesting it. Yes. And I'm trying to understand. And curating. I think that's what you mentioned, trying to understand. Because in the end of the day, you design something for your, the cut, your client's customers. Yes. So you put yourself into the shoes of the customers. Yes. Instead of like, you know, explaining what you see more from your own point of view. Yes. But that comes down to the communication between you and the client. You know? Yes. Because usually many, you know, have a specific idea how the product should look like. And yes. then the designer says, no, 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 it's not going to be like this, X, Y, Z. And then there will be some often miscommunication. Yes. And then there is no same kind of um, I would say language. Yes. How you pr- brief each other? How do you how to provide this yes. information? It's more like no, I want this. No, no, yes. no, it doesn't work like this. And then I think this also comes down to yes. to the communication you speak and you find the common yes, language. How you navigate the process. I mean, yeah. if one example I can give you with what we're doing here at Orikami Lab is that uh, you know once let's say the scope of services and the budget has been agreed on, the first step we do is called the visual brief process. Uh, we believe when it comes to literature or the traditional way of writing briefs that agencies have done, it doesn't seem to work uh, because different imagery is attached to different words, different visuals are attached to different words. Like, let's play it right now. If I say luxury, what's the first color that pops up in your head? In my case, I would say gold or silver. Yeah, and I would say yeah. deep purple. Yeah. So if I say, <laughs> if I write it down that this brand is, is associated with luxury, and I come up with something that is headlined with deep purple, and you're like, but that's not luxury for me, already you are setting up loopholes. So what we do is that we uh, put together 100 random images, mm-hmm. get the likes and dislikes from there, and that visual mood board becomes a brief for the project. And we are visually aligned to colors, aesthetics, graphics, materials, 
it was for product design. We even showed them actual tangible samples of like six different woods. We were like, okay, what's Scandinavian for you? <laughs> it, it could, because so, it could be different for different people. It's a right? definition where you actually can come up on the spot. What, yes. What is that for you on the spot yes. based on what you So we realized a visual alignment yeah. actually cleared out the conversations from there on. Yeah. I mean, the common yes. language, you actually set the yes. tone. It is the designer's responsibility to make sure communication is clear, along with the project manager, along with everyone dealing with that partner. But there are some things out of your hand. If the partner just does lack in the way of narrating what he or she is thinking, that, that sets the project for failure, and mm. that's out of the designer's hands. But the designer needs to make sure that he or she can control it yeah. as much as possible. That will help her to come up with something or deliver the story that works in benefit, that is aligned to what both parties were thinking. Mm -hmm. You know, it's so crucial. Like we realized with the visual brief, it solved so many questions, so many doubts, because, I mean... English itself is so complicated and how people use the words, it's so complicated. The and language itself is so simple, but that makes the complicated yes. part, you know. How because people attach, yes, exactly. So yeah. we had to control that ourselves. We had to change the process a bit under our Kami lab that we decided that we're not going to do a written brief. Mm. It's not going to be written, it's always going to be shown. Uh, every step of the way will be shown. You know, lifetime. The, we we used to have a lifetime mood board session. Yeah. You know, so there was no surprises. Yeah. Because people are so apprehensive with their relationship with designers that we wanted to make sure that we got them in the comfort zone fast. Yes. To get that out of the way and so focus. Putting them yeah. in the comfort zone fast. Um, I think this is, this is more or less also the outcome what you learned during your study. You know, you, work, you did study something, yes. you couldn't relate to it, etc., yes. etc. Et so when you're gonna, just going to go back yes. to this, how would you phrase that? How do you name that chapter? Or would you say that the, the study years are chapter two? Would you, would you say chapter two is all about this understanding that you have something else in mind you want to become, but you're not learning at the moment. This whole study experience, not just receiving knowledge, but mm. also looking for knowledge. Mm. Yeah. Do you see that as part of the chapter two? Yes, I do. I mean, I think that would be a chapter three. And I would... So what I would be chapter one, uh, two of them? Chapter so chapter two? two was basically, I would say, the last two years of school. Okay. How uh, would you name that? How would you f call this then? Hmm. <laughs> what passwords do you just have in mind? What keywords when you say the last two years of school? I don't know why. I just keep on thinking of the stream. I just keep up. It just keeps on coming back to me when it comes to those two years. Like I was saying, right? I changed. I adapted. It's a transition. It's, a, yeah. it's like you ad 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 adapting means also that you, ad you, you become something which 
So you have to change something towards it. Yes, and that's how water is, right? Yeah. Water is water. It doesn't change. But it adapts so much. It adapts into any shape. It overcomes rocks in its way. So it's adaptation. You know. So I think, yeah, it was something, I think, the fluid adaptation. That's where the designer that's that's comes in. <laughs> I, can't I would never come up with that. That's such a designer language. Fluid adaptation. But when you actually think about the words, you know, and you see then immediately a picture of a water stream going around. Yes. Um, obstacles. Yes. You know what's behind, yes. but you don't let yourself stop in front of yes. the obstacle. That's yes. Th those were my, those, yeah, those were my last two years in school. <laughs> and, and, and chapter three now in the, the, the university. That was the awakening. That was the awakening. <laughs> no, I realized, I realized who I wanted to be. And that shaped every conversation, um, every decision. I mean... The final year I was engaged to Hithain, uh ever since we told our parents, they decided that, oh, we should just get married early, you know, if you are committed, then stick together for the long term. Mm -hmm. But I had still made a decision that I need to first get a job. I yeah. need to identify myself as an independent person, uh, personally and professionally, before setting into this marriage that might merge me and Hithain together. You know, I was so conscious about that because I was so aware about what I wanted to do. I was so one with myself, suddenly. I did not want it to be affected by, uh, you know, the other set of decisions that I was looking forward to. So my aggression towards becoming a very good designer, a very good graphic designer, about getting an amazing portfolio put together, but putting myself out there, shaped up, fighting against the timeline of getting married. So, you know, it, like those years, from 2007 to 2011, it was all about, that's it, you mm. know, like hitting it. Because now I, I know what I want to do. I know my strengths and weaknesses. Now I'm in full gear. That's <laughs> it. Like, that's it. This is what I want. So I want to talk a little bit more about the 2010, 2011 times yes. uh, from onwards. You worked as graphic designer, art director as well. Yes. But not as a freelancer, right? You were employed. So I was employed 2010, oh my goodness, uh, September, October with Mikiaji. Yeah. So it was a, it was a retail brand. Uh, Bless them. I was a graphic designer over there. There was a team of four graphic designers who worked there. And our projects entailed from packaging to product design to digital design, advertising, retail design. Uh, I mean, a whole lot of mix of things. Yeah. That really, that is what I wanted. Yes. Because I wanted my first job to understand the breadth of opportunities a professional designer can do mm -hmm. and then pick mm -hmm. that. Am I more of a packaging designer? Am I more of uh, an art director? Am I more of a retail designer? Because graphic designer, again, it's, it's a principle that has a lot of sub-specializations. If you think about it, a brand designer is still a graphic designer. A retail designer is still a graphic designer. And an, an interior designer is still a graphic mm -hmm. designer because you're trying to narrate a personality. 
Bottom it's line. Design. How you react to a design? Yes. A graphic, online graphic design. Yes, yes. How yes. you react to the website? How you anything? Response. I mean, it's that. That is it. That is the yeah. umbrella, and all the other design specialties just branch out out of it. Yeah. So for me, I had to figure out that. Fortunately, with this job, I was getting a variety of projects, a variety of briefs. And I had to understand what my strengths and weaknesses were now in mm-hmm. graphic designing. So in 2011, then, uh, I had gotten married in Jan. So first day of marriage and then first day of career, it really brought in a lot of, uh, let's say, it was a roller coaster ride. But because it was not because of, it, I think it was more of the amazing amount of discoveries I was making about myself. Like, because both things were done in parallel and the first years tend to be the heaviest and newest and strangest for both as a job and as a marriage that I think by the end of 2012 I was a slightly different person. I was not that aggressive. I was a bit more calmer and somber because my optimism into entering the industry over here kind of went down. Mm-hmm. Because I realized suddenly how the industry, the office environment, the dynamics, perceptions were of a designer. You know, so you kind of like, okay, I need to live with this though. I can't suddenly be like, I'm going to go off to another country or shift. Mm -hmm. I was not the kind of person who would just, you know, do these erratic decisions because I was still mature and sensible, right? Yes. I needed to have some sort of stability. At the same time. Yes. But you also know what you have here. Yeah. Um, so it was... Instead of starting completely from scratch. Yeah, and I was like, maybe I'm reacting too soon or maybe it was more of a shell shock kind of a phase because for students transitioning into a professional work life, you do tend to have some sense of resistance mm-hmm. to what you see. And it's a rebel in Yeah, you, you are quietly rebelling. Yeah. But I was like, <laughs> I need to gather more experience. Yes. I need to work... And it was amazing because... With Mikyaji, I could work with different people. I could work with uh, the senior management directly as well. So I could understand body language, how conversations changed, mm-hmm. how priorities changed. Because I listened so much, I, I was kind of absorbing this knowledge. I was so curious about it. I was actually very curious about the management side of things when it came to markups, margins, orders, you know, customer acquisition. Maybe because... Uh, of my relationship with my father because by that time he had hit it really big with the company he was working for you know he was in senior management for uh, this insulation company oh my god if he hears this he might slap me (laughs) I don't even know if I've described it well so yeah so you know he would sometimes the only conversations he could have because he was such a workaholic was about the projects he did or the way he worked so I had already had gotten that base of knowledge over there, and I kind of responded to it well in my work environment too. Mm-hmm. That people actually started noticing that they were like, "She's not just a designer." Yeah. Because designers, what they think they're creative, messy. But you keep also the the, the overview when you just t- told me about you know interested in managing more like the the higher level. I see there is some kind of interest of like like as you say, customer acquisition. Yes. Uh, the whole process of yes. getting a client on board, not just, you know, executing specific Yeah, the, tasks, operations, the, the operations, processes, processes, processes from the beginning to the end. Yeah, I was very charmed project. by that because 
I was an organized person. I was not necessarily a neat person, yeah. but I was organized. Yeah. I knew how point A to point B to point C happened. That also was reflected in the way I worked. Yes. And, uh, because it was in the most amazingly way, there was no standardized way of working in Mikyaji. Each designer had his own way of receiving the brief mm -hmm. and then deciding if they want to work isolated or work alongside the individual who has sent the brief. So mm -hmm. either from buying, from marketing, you know, you worked with so many different people that you can decide if you want to sit with them, email them, maybe if you don't want to do face-to-face. -face. So because of that, people had realized that Richie is someone that they could work with more in a more holistic manner. Like, as an example I could give you is that when they wanted me to match shades of 300 plus products, or when they wanted me to handle the redesigning mm -hmm. of all the products, one of the reasons they said why is because you're so organized. You understand process and you speak to us. We are in the loop. Mm -hmm. That we can trust you with this project. It was more for the way I worked and less for how I was as a designer. That's how you worked, you know, the work from the very beginning to that, how you receive the information, how you've been organized, process, how you set your own processes to set specific deadline, etc. This, yeah. is, this is actually essential for everything. And I can see that leads to Orikami Lab as well. Yes. Because I, you have to, be, have to manage your own startup. I think because because I was a quiet person, so yeah. going back to childhood, I was a quiet person, I thought a lot. Yes. You know, people would say that you're such an overthinker. You're overthinking this. You're taking it too seriously. You're so serious. It's not that. Just, you know, let it go. So I would always, the first question would be like, okay, but why would you want it like that? Like, do you have to? Is it because this is the cheapest option for you? Or, you know, I was like, yeah. naturally, it was in the conversation. Yes. And people would be like, you know, what are you doing? Why are you not saying okay? Why are you not just taking the brief and saying what's the deadline? Because that's the most important thing yeah, for a designer. Yeah, yeah. But I was like, no, but maybe I can help out, like research. Like there were things like with the barcode sticker, let's say. I was like, it's a fun cosmetics brand. Why can't we shape the barcode to look like lips or eyes? That's a detailed. Yeah, you know, I was like, so it just makes more sense. And what if people see that and so much more fun? And, <laughs> you know, it was just come in conversation and they're like, you know, they would entertain it. Yeah. Bottom line, we both knew that maybe they won't go ahead with it. Yeah. But I think there was a sense of making them think too. Yes. Not like uh, factory. You questioned that actually. You know, you suggested it, but at the same time. I'm okay. I'm okay if it does not work. But I feel like bring some light into alternatives. Yes. yes. Um, no monetary. This is a perception that designer, uh, people have about designers. And that's something I want to bring up, that the role of the designer is not to come up with the answers, but to ask the right questions. You say on top of your LinkedIn profile, you say it's all about perception. Yeah. And that's a good summary, actually, what you just said. It is. It's all about perception. Oh, my goodness. Seeing a black banana with a yellow background. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. Similar when I, I still remember that. Milk, when I see a black milk, for example, you know, yeah. it's like... What we, what we know from our experiences, questioning this. Yeah. 
It's not questioning or sometimes riding those perceptions. Yeah. In Dubai, appearance matters. The rise of self-branding counselors gives you that assurance that you need to also focus on how you dress up and your body language. Mm. I can tell you right now, and I can say this on the podcast, is that if I have to go to DIFC or Emirates Towers, I'm going to wear my best clothes and I'm going to take my dad's Porsche. Okay? <laughs> but if I have to go to a factory, I'm wearing my yeah. T-shirt and jeans or pajamas and I'm taking my brother's Camry. <laughs> that is how it is. Yeah. And I do not want to fight with it because that is not something worth fighting for. Mm. There's a bigger truth that I want to fight for. But this is what it is over here. Mm. This is why I say it's all about perception. Uh, you know, when I had to start out and say, oh, I am the design director of Oikami Lab, and as much as I would love to use graphic designer, I have to say design director to, you know, to push that seniority, to push the seriousness, to validate myself. I had to list down the companies and the brands I've worked for, fortunately worked with good brands, one of my ex-creative directors, God bless him, Tristan, he also put in a recommendation. All of those things help mm. as a designer. It's less of your work, your thinking, your principle. The first thing you need to show is, okay, I work with Nike. Now you can speak to me and take me seriously. Mm. So it is, bottom line, it is that. It's sad, but... It's you, a you, language. You it's a language. Yeah, it's a language. Area. So you, after, you know, worked there for three, four years? Yes. It, it was less than a year you started Orikami Lab. So in between you worked for oh yeah, so uh, more uh, companies. So yeah. what what was your work there, and how did it lead to Orikami Lab? So what happened when I was starting to think about leaving Makiaji is that I was now very much aware about the industry dynamics over here, uh, the kind of companies, because I was I started doing a lot of research. I started reading a lot. I started uh, going on to international design forums to see how industries in US, in Singapore, how in Tokyo they were doing, how they were performing. And I realized that if I wanted to do that level of work, I need to start working on the agency front. Uh, as much as I love working on the client side, understanding how a client functions internally, how a brand functions, it was time to go to the other side, to go into the two blue you know, culture, environment. Mm -hmm. I had done two internships, but those were done out of favors. They were not properly set up companies, so I still did not understand how companies were over here. But I realized I need to work, you know, for an advertising agency, and the luxury I have is all the kind of projects I've done, maybe they will take me. By the end of it, uh, the first one I went to was actually a startup. Uh, the first prerequisite I had was I need to learn. I have not worked in an agency environment. You need to teach me how to do that. Mm -hmm. And I will be a good employee. Like I was like, that is it. I need to be a student. I need to learn. Unfortunately, that environment, now if I say it, they did not really listen to what I needed. And I was lost. Uh, it's a startup environment. Right? Or, I was so yeah. lost. And, you know, you go from retail, so structured, so safe, processes. To a startup environment. To a startup. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Can you imagine? I think by the third day, I went back home and I broke down. You know, for a person who is organized, yes. who is serious, who is stable, 
Yeah. This is too much too soon. Yeah. I think when it comes to startup, you know, it's actually a survival instinct to, you know, to, to Oof, be yeah. very flexible in a startup environment. But at the same time, you can't it's be a, a student in a startup environment. Exactly. But it's you can't depend on someone. Yeah. That is what I'm trying to say. You can't be like, okay, you teach me. Do you have time to teach me? Please mm. teach me. Give me these proactive projects. It wasn't that. But what is missing most of the time in startups is having some kind of understanding of how to be organized. You know, you have yeah. to be flexible, you have to act, you have to react, etc. And this was a startup advertising slash digital agency. So it's not for a product, right? Yeah. So the people who had set it up already had amazing amount of experience in yeah. the industry. They had reached senior levels. They decided, now I make it to my own. Yeah. You'd think that they would have a bit of... I mean, you rely on them to understand the way it works. But the situations you get exposed to, how you get lost in the political system of it, by the end of it, it's destroying you professionally and also as an individual. Yeah. It was crushing me that I decided that I need to just go through the six months of probation. While that was happening, I had the second and the main trigger of my life when it came to how Origami Lab happened was I saw this announcement on creativeblock.com and it was a shout out by this agency in Brazil where they were calling for creatives from all around the world. <clears throat> and they were saying, you get to watch FIFA, which is happening over there. <laughs> You get free housing, free beers, and you get to be on a project with us. Mm. And I was like, this is crazy. <laughs> and I was scared because I was like, will I do this? Like, I'm okay, fine, now I'm a self-confident person. I'm focused on what I'm doing, but I'm not erratic. I'm not curious. I'm not a kid. I never was. I was a mature person. This I cannot be doing this. And you put yourself then in the shoes as being not mature, you know? But you, you uh, yes. In an environment you don't know at all. Yeah. And I was so desperate because the environment I was currently in professionally yeah. was not helping me. And I was like, if this would put me out, okay, fine, let's go for it. So I applied, got accepted. And the only thing I'm grateful for from this startup was that they let me go while I was on probation for 10 days to Brazil and oh my goodness for 10 days yeah it was for 10 days 10 days okay. so it was like a boot camp session yes and the pro so we go there now this is something I, I want to go into detail because this is when I've had a radical shift in my system as a designer <laughs> yeah. right I go in day one it's you're by this festive street in Sao Paulo, where people are just going out, drinking, partying. But what do you think of Brazil commercially? That is what's happening that night, okay? Was it the carnival? So, the, like, yeah, it was the football season, right? Football, so okay. people are just loving it. Yeah. There's music, there's drums, percussions. <laughs> I mean, it was amazing. I mean, the vibe. Yes. To just go into this foreign land with these people who are happy and creatives. I was so excited. Next day was the first day of the brief. And this is the beef that I was thinking, right? Create a campaign with branding, do a commercial so it benefits this retail house. What I normally encountered, no. 
You work with the mayor of Sao Paulo to nurture a better relationship with residents. And that just blew. I was shocked. I was like, what? Us? Like, how can we do that? Like, I was like, this is crazy. This is what I've come for? Like, they should have probably released the brief. This is not me. This is, this is, this is civic design. This is like yes. architect. Like, and I remember the lady, Fefa, she was this, she was like this goddess in that room at that moment. And she's like, so we call creatives and we understand just designers and copywriters came back, but we meant creatives, people who thought creatively, not just designers. Again, that blew me away. I was like, okay, this is, it's a thought. Mm. It's not what you tangibly create that makes you a designer. Yeah. It's a thought. And then they start taking us through this brief. We've never, I've never had such a brief presentation, right? They start profiling personas. And the same people they're profiling, they're coming and talking about their life, right? And you have these post-it notes and markers that I'm seeing for the first time. And I love stationery. And I've never seen post-it notes and markers this many with this variety of colors, you know, with charts. And they're telling us, listen, note down. There. Now you put private notepads, Mm -hmm. there. Sketch. Anything you're seeing while you're listening, put it down. And I was taken aback. I'm like, is this college? Is this, is this actually happening? This is not. This, this cannot be happening at an agency level. Yes. This is college. Yes. But this is so much fun. Then they're like, okay, now we're done listening. Let's walk through the environment. I was like, what's going on here? Like the first day, I felt like I was, like my spirit was having some kind of a... Being I, in a different... I was speechless. Yes. You know, I could not even... I was getting the sense of like sun rays bursting through these dark clouds kind of moment in me that is this also what we can do? Is this the potential of our impact? You saw a complete different like, you know... I just saw this radical shift and this connected with me so much because we come from such a philanthropic, charitable background that doing something and seeing the results immediately that resonates with me and my family. To do that professionally, I was like, I, wow, like, you know, you start looking at yourself, you know, like your spirit has come out and out of your body and you're having this out of body experience. And so we're, so we're walking and we're interviewing and we're doing research, we're actually doing research, we're doing processes, we're doing failures, realizations, feasibility tests, like, in those 10 days, you know, by the time those 10 days were over, I was like, I cannot go back to UAE. And not because I don't miss my family or my husband, it's because I know no one does this back yes. there. There was a sense of an existential crisis. When I just listened to what you just said, yes. Isn't that all about human-centered design? It you is. have been exposed first to the human-centered design, seeing the problem in front of you. Living it. And living it, but also getting to know the people you're designing yeah, it for. Yeah, like stepping into their shoes, you know, walking through the environment that they have faced challenges in, 
speaking to both sides of the situation, you know, uh, the mayor and the residents, um, doing one-on-one -on -one sessions, trying to get into that culture, because once you're one with that person's life is where you can truly understand and shift perspective, you know. When we say empathy, when we we really have to behave how that person behaved in his or her life to encounter the same issue. So we can also encounter it as closely, as naturally as possible to then realize, okay, this is where the issue is. Uh, you know, some people, what they do is that they look at a timeline of a person and they're still sitting on the other side as a viewer and observing it not trying to go into that person's shoes, not probably even interacting one hour of a day and trying to see, I want to go stay in that house. I want to eat their food. I want to interact with their family. I want to take on the burden that they take on to truly come up with something, to discover a solution, tangible or narrative or policy level that can bring true impact if not only to him directly, but to his family and to generations to come. Because by the end of it, what has been good design? By the end of it, what is good design? A good design is a, a mission statement that generations have stuck by. A good design is, you know, let's say a very good chair that has solved a back problem but they all have solved a purpose that ties in with a human element, you know, emotionally, health-wise, biologically. Mm. So that is what good design is. And that's something that I started thinking, that it's not about selecting typography for buy to get one free, which I completely respect individuals who continue to do that, but I do not find value in that. Mm -hmm. I could not connect to that. What you're talking about is actually also sustainability, yeah. right? Good design is long-lasting, but it's also sustainable. Because the, yes. the solution should, you know, adopt, it will be changed over time anyway, yes. but it should not be a one-off, you know, short-time solution. It should yes. last for a longer time period. At least sometime, right? Yeah. Like, you know, we, I, I read about such inspiring projects that have built in toilet sanitation systems in villages, you know, that is something that is worth striving for, is worth working towards, because that is what I see myself doing, that, and that is the impact I want to make, is that I want to make a good impact in a person's life. I don't want to convince him that this toothpaste is the best one you get. Yes. But what you, when you impact one person's life, you know, you mentioned about that toilet. I think this. What's the name of this? Um, the one toilet project or something. Um, it impacts so many more. Yes. The whole village. If yes. you support one person or one solution where multiple people in the same village can potentially use it, you impact the whole generation. Yes. It's and positively productive. Yeah. You know, because we are teaching those kids how to better, you know, come up with better hygiene habits. They in turn will teach their kids, you know. The way the society works will also be uplifted. So it's, you are encouraging better conversations with solutions you come up with, better habits, better ways of livelihood. And I think 
that is a very noble cause and suddenly you take your role so much more seriously mm-hmm. you know because you see the end result when you go there and they say you need to make point your finger at them and they say i need to make their lives better and they're looking at you right and when then when you approach the project it takes on a whole new meaning you are suddenly stepping also in the foot of your client because you empathize with them and their challenges you take too. responsibility i think also. a lot more seriously because that's in the end of the day when you design something for a person who is in need of that you as you said you put yourself in shoes also as your client because you can you know understand each other but also you take responsibility of the impact yes. it's not you just deliver a product and yes. then you and know you, you let, take and you back out and you disappear no yeah. You see you're the investors and you have to, you know. Yes, up, up you're invested. Yeah. You're invested and you want to see it through. Yeah. And you're directly responsible for how that result affects those people. You know, it just takes on a whole new uh, a whole new meaning to at least my life when I had that experience in Brazil, you know, going to the, meeting all these different kinds of people, understanding their situations. And not, necess- not necessarily pointing fingers at the mayor, but understanding his challenges too. You know, with the you know with simple briefs you get nowadays, it's 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 so one-dimensional. You know, it's ironically it's black and white, hmm. but you feel like it's so much more than that. You know, it's so much more than that. It's you need to find a balance where both people can compromise but in a way that suits them better in a much more comfortable manner and that's i mean i'm talking about you know society related projects when it comes to things that are a bit more less an impact less serious then i focus more on the individuals who are there at the inception try to focus on because they might not come to us at the right time they might come to us when it's too late for us to change anything yes in their culture in their product in their principles then you just hope and pray that the way you are and what you can show to them as to how you perform your services as a designer teaches them something yeah just listening to you I just remember when it comes to entrepreneurship and when we talk about social entrepreneurship we yes. often design something to react to a problem yes. instead of designing something to prevent a problem. Yes. And that nowadays needs to be taught as well. What are the yes. potential future issues yes. which are already, you know, can be forecasted yes. instead of always reacting to yes. it. Because the problem we might not have today might we might have in a couple of years, but then we're reacting to it. Yeah. How can we act already? Yeah. And that That market research, that's seeing that there is a problem coming. If not market research, you need to make yourself future-proof. You know, be ready and prepared that there will be some scenarios, like poor old KFC, they had to shut down their stores because they ran out of chicken. Yes. (laughs) If they just did the future scope hard workshop, you know, of future casting, whatever an agency calls it, and they would have laughed at that possible problem. Imagine if a designer told one of those people that, mm. hey, what if chickens ran out? They'd be like, are you crazy? No, 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 no. They would have laughed it out. It actually happened. Yes. You know, poor Kodak, poor Nokia. If you think about their issues, it's because 
lack of anticipating problems and hence they could not come up with the right decisions that could have probably saved them mm-hmm. in probably changing the culture maybe acquiring a product making better investments or coming up with alternate solutions and adapting faster right adapting it, yeah. faster yeah already being prepared in advance being prepared for all those five to ten problems you've come up with yeah. that is something we aggressively uh, facilitate in workshop format with our partners we always tell them you have to make sure that next year is not your last year and how do we prevent that we come up with fake cities with fake headlines and f- because that changes the dynamics right yeah. let's say like uh suddenly everything is blockchain based then how do farmers work and if you're an organic restaurant or you do farm fresh food how does that affect you then yes. you know like questions like that but they do not have the time to think about it right they need to keep the company alive sustaining at the current moment so that's where we come in we come in with future based scenarios uh and they have to tackle and realize uh, a list of problems that can come up out of the scenarios where they, then they can do better research they can say okay well first of all they need to be serious about it if their mentality is not being receptive to what we are providing to them to what they are realizing that's it mm-hmm. it's the end of the line for them the ones that they do they are safe and secure and that's something we actually apply to ourselves also as our kami lab because we realize that being a designer a service based agency competitors are everywhere as much as there are opportunities and one thing we had to make sure was that the way we had framed our business model the way we had strategized on our services that what whichever leg got knocked out of the three legged stool we were still standing mm-hmm. and we were still balanced yes you know and that's something we try to teach yes and push for with our partners so you mentioned about origami lab and i want to quickly summarize the chapter 5 with lead to origami lab and then also how would you summarize the time when you know start origami lab to now mm. um so the time towards origami lab with your you know the internship and the work how would you yeah, summarize it as a system. chapter what would be when you say it's it was, <laughs> no, it was a shock system yeah it was a shock system because you know after i came back from brazil and then i left the startup yeah. as our freelancing and then boom i got this amazing opportunity at jwt which for a designer you think you've made it big so suddenly um i had forgotten that sense of energy and state of mind i had and i and i was you know like flirted with the idea that oh my god i've made it so as a designer i was happy i became too comfortable i became too comfortable yeah, because i had reached the top right yeah, yeah. but that also ended quite fast because i was only freelancing over there but 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 that's where the third seed comes in my creative director over there tristan uh amazing amazing man he was really sweet really nice probably the first one who kind of let me handle projects on my own mm-hmm. pitches dealing with account managers understanding the brief discussing everything he kind of said do it on your own um working on career projects remotely for another agency so i basically handled work for dubai and jwt bahrain which was so new it was felt like you were doing a bit of management slash creative uh he kind of summed 
he, he, I, I think it's there in testimonial as well, where he had said that, you know what, Richie, what I like about you, you're a designer who thinks, and that I don't encounter every day. He kind of showed this new side of me to myself by talking about me to me, where I realized I did not even know this was an asset that I thought mm-hmm. about things, that I questioned things, that every element, color, typography, material, even whatever medium I chose had a reason behind to it. You know, there was a purpose. And there was a reason why. Yeah, and I could talk before. about mm-hmm. it. I could talk about why I did it. Mm-hmm. And he's like, that is your asset. And I did not realize that until now. You know, I, I could not sum myself up as a designer. How could I stand apart? He's like, you think. And I was focused more about my crafts and my applications and my treatment and my aesthetics as a designer of how I, you know, did my work, how I finished it. And he was like, but that's not it. You're trying to be a successful designer based on how other people have defined it. You already have a strength within you that sets you apart. Mm-hmm. He also says that, um, that you apply <coughs> imagination intelligence to design. Yeah, that's really And that's a very nice <laughs> kind of the intelligence in a meaning. Yeah. Put meeting, meaning and everything what you design has a reason why it exists at that you know I, up until then people did not speak about my work they did not give me this sense of feedback it was more focused on giving me feedback that works for them mm-hmm. they never really highlighted me to myself actually I don't get that much okay. it's not something that I search for but it's not something that comes by because whenever it does it catches me off guard because like I think it's too soon right now. I'm not Zahadid, for God's sake. You know, give me some more years, then I would probably listen to it. So the goods and the bads that he did say, it just, you know, it was so new and it was, it kind of centered me as to, okay, okay, that's it. Like, this is it. This is what I have to do. And when he said that you're a designer who thinks, immediately I kind of whipped back to Brazil. And I was like, what am I doing? Like, what's going on? Went back into another existential crisis then. And left JWT, kept on freelancing. I was, I was so familiar with, and I was so comfortable freelancing because it was that the pattern of projects were different. And I really liked that. And I was building relationships with new people uh, professionally. For a designer, that's such an asset. Because over here, and I can tell you from the friends that I have, They do not know many people in the industry. They don't, you know. They always have to start from scratch once they leave a company, and that's so sad. Mm. So when you're freelancing, you build up a network who you can go back to, you can say hi, you can catch up, no strings attached, mm-hmm. no, bur- mm. no bridges burned. So... Because um, <clears throat> you're not representing, you know, a company, you're representing yourself. Yes. So and that makes you more authentic. Yes, Natural. yes, yeah. 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 And... Um, so I kind of started brooding. I was like, what do I do? Maybe I can get a degree, yeah. you know? I can study more. Uh, but what I realized, and this might sound arrogant, but I realized that I don't need to study it if I'm already living it. I do not need to study human-centered design mm-hmm. if that's already naturally inbuilt in my system. 
I'm familiar with it so much that it is me, you know? It, the topics and the steps you have to take, I naturally do that in my life. Why do I need to study it? Why, yeah. why should I get a degree? For who? For myself or the person? Yes. I was like, I'm not going to do that. Just to be seen, you have I'm not going to say degree. that yeah. I'm not credited. I was like, That's, I'm going to act on it, show them my actions, make them believe it, and then get them on board. Mm. So I still did not decide by that time that I wanted to, you know, start my own thing. Hiten and I had actually, from 2011 to 2012, did do our own online t-shirt business called Bear Melon. And it did not work out too well because it was way ahead of what people needed. Again, see, it always goes down to the people. And I realized that, no, I, I need to build some more experience before I even start my own business. The final trigger came from my brother and my dad, you know. We had come up with this idea where I wanted to come up with temporary retail experiences, you know. And I was brewing the idea when Boxpark had launched. Mm -hmm. And I was like, something like this. And I was brainstorming with them. And one fine day, they both dropped by home. And they're like, this thing, this thing that you wanted to do, this thing, just do it. Shut up and just do it. Like, <laughs> get lost and just do it, you know? Yeah. And this chapter of my life, I would call it, wake the fuck up. Oh, like, you. You, know, you know what you have to do. Now you know your strengths and weaknesses. You know the philosophy. You've done it. You've done a project. You know, you've learned from it so much. It's like everything was there. All the pieces of the puzzle were there. I still did not take an action on it until two people slapped me in the face and said, just do <laughs> Sometimes it. Sometimes just need someone who will give you their fun yeah, push. Yeah, you know, Even just you do it. I'm like, okay, right okay. Yeah. And that's how Alkami Lab started. So when you just... Uh, that was a starting point, you know, where you realized that these were there. The yes, I was there. My personality there. was there, my principle exactly. was there, you know, my designer philosophy was there. That's so it. at the time where you got, you know, prepared with your work, uh, internship, etc., how would you phrase that chapter? Because I'm just look, still looking into the chapter five. What was that preparation towards it? I think it was the iceberg. The iceberg? Yeah. I was just at the tip of it, you know? So the tip of you. Did I, the iceberg. It was the tip of my career because it was the starting point, but I did not get to the bottom of it yet, not to the breadth of it, not to the bottom of myself. Everything that was more. true me yeah. was below the surface of the water. And I dove in and Brazil happened. <laughs> That's the true breadth. The moment like, of realization. Yeah, you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's amazing. You know, and it's amazing how I... I kind of thought of UAE as my comfort zone because everything happened here by the end of it. When I stepped out of it is when I realized my place in it. So it's amazing how, and because my friends would say that, right? They studied abroad, they came back and they're like, oh, you know, we see it in a different light. You have to, you have to, exp you know, um, have to live in other cultures and yeah, other environments. Yeah, see unknown to, factors. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. Otherwise you become too comfortable where you are. I can see the dots <laughs> connected. <laughs> Make the <laughs> fuck up F. I'm gonna yeah, send this in the, in the oh, podcast. Okay, it was like the realization part. Yeah, it was a really realization part. Just get up. It's, everything is there. Yeah, and I think this is where usually 
when so many look into entrepreneurship starting on business, they are scared of taking the first step yes. because they're scared of the consequences. They might know they are ready, but they are very scared of taking the first step. Yeah, I think or they're not you know, that self-confident yeah. to do the first step, even if was, they will be ready. See, I was not scared of failing. I was still unsure of what would I be promising, what value would I be delivering, you know? Because you've nodded to it and you are confident about it, but how do you put it into words, right? And then what are the services then you offer that reflect that? What's the process you do? Uh, so all that became, ever since when I said yes, that became kind of a, I need to put it down. That's where my management back, background came in, a business plan. You know, what are the pros and cons over here? Because it's so new within the region. Mm -hmm. With all the research I did, actually one year after we launched were, was when two agencies with the design thinking principle came in. So we were the only ones who even even had that label on our website. There was no one else. Yeah. There were many branding agencies, digital, like, oh, there was high saturation of designers over here, but no one providing such a service. Um, that means your clients could be anyone and everyone, which is not a nice, it's not a good thing to say. As a, you know, people with corporate background, you'd never say anyone and Mm -hmm. Everyone is my target audience. You need to really break it down. So that's something that I was thinking about. I can't just say yes and think of a mm -hmm. name. The first thing I want to do is put what I want to offer. How will I price it? You know, how much time will I give to it? All the processes, all the thinking. I can see that the thinking designer yes, sitting I, in front I, of me. You know, the see, the look, reason why. Behind everything, from I think pricing, that from takes offering. the most amount. That yes. takes the most amount of efforts and steps. Yeah. For me, when we in a project, when we get into creating it, I find that to be the most easiest and the most fun part because I'm not scared anymore. I know the story, and once I see the story and the client sees it, that's it. Yeah. The most thing is trying to get the story right. Get the st you know it was, and if you see with our website, it's. All, it's all spoken word, not many visuals, you know? And it's again black and white. So I need to use the right words, the text. The identity goes from the website over the, you know, what you're working on, how the studio looks like. It's like one language as well. Yeah. You're talking. I wanted people to feel connected with us, yeah. no matter how they approached us, what touch point they used. We only decided on social media that we we're going to show the alter ego of ourselves, like supremely colorful and surreal and, you know, because it's conversations yeah. and it's more individualistic. So, Richie, we almost talked around two hours, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I want to quickly summarize everything. And the best summary is usually, you know, what is the book about? What is the title of the book? Because when this is the awakening moment in the end, you know, um, you woke up to realize. And we looked into all the chapters from, um, you know, when did you, when I grow up fast, or mm. you know, the awakening moment to the end, mm. how would you title this whole kind of book? What would be the title about? How would you name that book? 
Hmm. Or how would, let's say, let's say, what would I see on the cover? What is the cover looking like? Would it be black and white as well? No, because then it, it, it also reflects my personal life. So that's where it gets tricky. <laughs> you know, with Orkami Lab, I'm so clear. When it comes to myself, it's always like, I'm so just keeping it open. It's blurry then. There's one part blurry and becomes more clear. Yeah. So it's that like could probably be, that's good. That's probably the type of we let the story unfold. As the story unfolds. When the story unfolds. Oh, now I'm brainstorming, now I'm copywriting. <laughs> <laughs> Um, this is the details. But I can see that there's a blurry part. There know, is a blurry, blurry part. part. And there's, it gets more, you know. Oh, yeah. I mean, work front, as a designer, I'm so crystal clear. It's blurry now, personally, because now I'm a parent. So it's, I'm overthinking about my daughter, myself as a parent, because you're the first educators, right? You are the first educators, what you're teaching them, how you're correcting them. Uh, I'm so conscious about that. How every day, like, what will I teach her now? What will I do her? You know, what will I do with her now? What's the nutrition now? What will I read to her now? What will I expose? It? So it's it's always something new and something uncertain, you know. But it's also exciting because I want it to be the best for her. Because I realized what I did not get, and I want to give that to her. Orikami Lab, I'm crystal clear. I know what I want. I know what I want to do. People can. You can see it. People can, I can talk endlessly about work, mm-hmm. about projects, about people, about current situations at hand. That's it. Like, but yeah, and I, I like that. I like that balance. I like that I'm not the same person when I go back home. I mean, you describe or on the website, Orikami Lab is a design thinking lab to simplify problem and discover solutions that put people at the center. That's yeah. a, just a summary. This is a summary. But that's also what I can see is what you're trying to put on your on your yes on your daily life as well. Yeah, it's the principle. Putting, yeah. People, people you matter. Work. Yeah, it's people. not a customer or a consumer. It's a person. It's a human partner. being. And also, what you rephrase that partner, partner. Like partner. client. Yeah. Like I, I have to use that word because people think partners are people you work alongside. And yeah, I work alongside the yeah. freaking client. Yeah. Like that is every step of the way. You know, I get it, sometimes they get it, sometimes I give in, sometimes they give in. But that's how our relationships are. Mm. That's how it should be. It's not a fight of ego. There's not a sense of, I'm putting whatever I like. You know, it's it's not so short-handed. Yeah. There's some long-term impact, some big picture. So, oh, the big picture. The big, should we call it the big picture? Yeah, I like that, I like that. <laughs> the big picture. Um, where can I find the big picture in the library? So I'm going, you know, main entrance, last question. And said, I'm looking for the big picture. <laughs> and then, the, uh, where do they send me to? Which section of the library? I would certainly have to make it more motivational then. Do I see it in a design and art and design section? I would also, or? yeah, I would. Because then I would create more management content because go figure, designers do need that over here. Especially, especially many people that I meet, they need to understand holistically, right? How a company works, and when you go to a design section, you don't find that. So entrepreneurship section, like Entre- yeah, yeah, that uh, too. Economy section, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I've, it's like 
I feel like I my life is still in the beginning. Still in the yeah. beginning. I feel like there's so much more I can do. So much more that I can learn and discover. There's so many more chapters in my life. Uh, and I'm sure my daughter is going to be a lot of triggers for a lot of those chapters too. She will yeah, be a yeah. whole I'm looking forward to that. Well. I'm yeah. looking forward to that. And yeah. And I always say that it's a work in progress and I love it. Yeah. yeah. I think that's what you said is a good summary also that, you know, you should always keep, always have that mentality of learning something new every single day. Yes. Otherwise you become too comfortable. Yes. I started a couple of months ago this mindset of whenever I'm getting up now, I'm trying to learn something new from someone mm. who I meet today. Mm. Even if I see the same person at work, yeah. the same colleague, I'm trying to learn something new from that person. Instead of like putting on, you know, what I share, what I already know, trying yeah. to learn something new. Have you, if you have that mindset, you're trying to be more open, way more open of receiving information mm. and learning from others. Yeah, because you you can only learn from others. Yeah, as much right. as you you can share. Conversations are important. Yeah, more than. And I tell people if people are reaching out to you, reach out back to them. Have a conversation with people, even if nothing happens after that. That conversation itself will teach you so much. Yeah, and just listening to you, that will last a bit more than two hours. What I learned from you is that in order to be a designer, you have to be an entrepreneur as well. You need to have both. And that word leads to design thinking. Yes. And that word, the, the root problem you're trying to solve comes down to yes. knowing the person you're trying to provide yes. that solution. Yes, absolutely. And that's... that's um, easier said than done. Yes, it is. Especially when you never see that person you're oh, offering yes. it. But that's especially when you're trying to build something from scratch mm. where you're in charge of the product and who you're yeah. focusing on. I think that's where you try to create Orikami Lab also, that you're in charge of all these processes mm. by yourself. Mm. Let, let's put it in other yeah. people's hand. Yeah. There we go. Richie, ah. thank you so much. Over two hours. You know, the other day that someone suggested, <laughs> like, should, should we cut this podcast in two, chap uh, like two parts, like <laughs> part one and the next week? But to be honest, you know, if someone wants to, like, you know, listen to it, like, for 20, half an hour, they can continue come doing it. Come back yeah. to it. Yeah. You don't need to... You just We're going to keep it as one piece. Yeah. Everyone's life is so rich, though, you know? Yes. You don't want to break it into exact two. Exactly. And to be honest, I could have talked with you so much more <laughs> in each chapter. And this is the beauty of this podcast. I realized that on the last interviews. I will definitely follow up with everyone and also with you to maybe have a special podcast in the future to say okay this is only a special uh, chapter chapter five special edition you know where mm. we just dig deep really deep mm. into this one <laughs> chapter and also to see what is the next chapter actually mm. in your in your life you know yeah. we haven't talked about what are the next chapters mm. and that could be a yeah. separate podcast but i would love to explore thank you so much for having me awesome thank you so much thanks richie bye thanks this is richie after listening to her talk, I don't know why, but I really want to go to Brazil and check out the designer work approaches, including home and center design work there. You can find more about Richie on her LinkedIn, link in the show notes, or on Orikami Lab website on www.orikamilab.com. So this was kind of a design thinking, entrepreneurship, home and center design talk. Who else do you want to hear? What other innovators 
entrepreneurs, idealists, changemakers, athletes. You want to hear next? Please leave some comments. You can always reach me on Instagram or Twitter at ByDanielRudwick. Hope you enjoyed this podcast. I see you in the next one. Just never give up. Always look up.